Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. Well, the title of this message, we have been in this book for about five or six weeks now. The series is called Gospel on the Ground. We want the gospel to get traction in our lives. The title of this particular message and this particular paragraph is When Life Stays Hard. When Life Stays Hard. Most of us in here, we don't like hard things, but we're willing to put up with hard things so long as they're short, so long as they pass quickly. But we are now five paragraphs in to chapter one, and we are still talking about trials. Pastor James has just been walking paragraph by paragraph here, and every single one of them ties back to what he began in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we've just been sitting in the reality that sometimes life doesn't just get hard, but life stays hard. So we want to look at today's paragraph and let the Spirit of God do what He intends to do in our lives. Verses 16 to 18. I want to encourage you to get your eyes on it. Keep your eyes on it. Keep your Bibles open. Keep them on. We're going to work right through this text this morning. Verse 16, follow along with me. James writes and he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's the big idea. It sits over top of this text. We're going to pull it apart here and dig into it and study it for the next 30 or 35 minutes. It's this. When life stays hard, keep trusting God. When life stays hard, keep trusting God. Has someone ever said this to you? Trust me. Trust me. We've all been in situations, no doubt, where someone has had to tell us that we can trust them. Maybe it was a mechanic. You took your car in thinking that all you needed was an oil change. And when the mechanic calls you up and gives you the list of things that you have not been fixing over time, that's now going to cost you several thousand dollars, he says to you, trust me, you're going to want to get these things done. Or maybe it's that waitress when you ask that question, well, what would you recommend on the menu? And she says to you, hey, this this is the item. Now, I know it's the most expensive item on the menu, but trust me, you're not going to regret it. This is what you want to try. This is what you want to eat. Maybe it was a guidance counselor when you were overwhelmed by the academic load at your school that you were taking, and this guidance counselor sits down with you and helps you to sort through what you shouldn't take and what you should take, and then they finally say, trust me. Trust me, this is what you want to do. Or maybe it's that skydiving instructor. As he is attaching his harness to your harness at several tens of thousands of feet up in the air and just before he throws himself and pulls you out of the plane, he says, trust me, it's going to be great. How about the dads in the room? 
All of us have held the back of the bicycle seat of our four, five, or six-year-old child as we've taken those training wheels off and we've been running behind that child down the street holding the back of the seat. And what are we saying to our fearful child in that moment? Trust me, trust me, trust me. We've all been there. We've said that phrase. We've maybe had that phrase said to us. Maybe it was a spiritual father or brother or sister or mother or mentor in your life. You were making a decision that was going to wreak havoc on your life and they sat you down and intercepted you and said, this is not what you want to be doing with your life. Trust me. When someone says, trust me to you, it's because everything about the circumstances are screaming, you can't trust this situation. Everything about the circumstance is saying you want to bail on this and get out while you can. And yet it's the very character of that individual who is looking you in the eyes and saying, trust me, that calls you to that place of dependence on their character and not the circumstances surrounding you. Chapter 1 has been pounding us with the reality of trials. Verse 2 trials of various kinds. Verse 3, the testing of our faith. Verse 5, our lack of and our need for wisdom in trials. Verse 6, our own doubts that, that cause us to be tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea. Verse 9, our lowly circumstances. Verse 10, our humiliation that comes. Verse 11, the very temporary nature of all things. Verse 12, the call to endure while we remain under trials. And then verses 14 and 15 from last week, the trial of temptation and the struggle of the flesh and now what God is saying to us through the writings of James he is saying trust me life has been hard life is staying hard and while you may not be able to trust the circumstances around you God says you can trust me so James is going to get us to get our eyes off of our circumstances and up to our Savior the one whose character can be trusted. And if we're honest this morning, can we be honest in church today? Is that, is that allowed? Trust is easy when life is easy. Trust is hard when life is hard. And trust is hardest when life stays hard. It's easy to talk about trust. Yeah, when, when life stays hard, keep trusting God. It's easy to talk about in church, but it's a lot harder to do when you're the one there. And, and you feel the heat of the furnace continues to crank hot in your life. And maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling what, what I would call trial fatigue. You're just weary. You're, you're just worn down to the bone. And you're thinking, God, why? Why is it still hard? God wants to speak those two words to you today. Not from me, but from him. Trust me. Trust me. So Pastor James is going to put the gospel right where it belongs for us today. And that is on the ground. So that we can see it and understand it and apply it to our lives. So when life stays hard, keep trusting God. This is the question we want to answer. How? How can I keep trusting God when life stays hard? Our text is going to answer that question. It's going to give us four actions. One of them, the first is going to be a negative action. And then the second, third, and fourth will be positive actions. 
If you're keeping notes, it's going to look like this. I can keep trusting God by, number one, resisting subtle, misleading lies. Resisting subtle, misleading lies. It's in verse 16. Look at it in the text. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's almost as if James can anticipate the subtle, misleading lies that Christians tend to believe after four weeks in a row, four paragraphs in a row, he's been preaching to us about trials. When life stays hard, we become more and more susceptible to these lies. And so with the heart of an affectionate pastor, he says, beloved brothers, do not be deceived. Now there are endless lies that we are tempted to believe. Some of them we've seen right in this text. We are tempted to believe that trials serve no purpose. We are tempted to believe that God has forgotten us. We are tempted to believe that God cannot give wisdom for our circumstances. We're tempted to believe that God sends temptations, and James addressed that head on last week. We're tempted to think that, hey, it's okay if I flirt with temptation and sin in my life, so long as it's not affecting anybody else. These are those subtle lies that begin to creep into our life when life stays hard. See, our mind is the soil where lies can be planted and grown. And the reality is when life stays hard, that soil just becomes a little bit more fertile to those deceptive lies because life has just stayed hard. So the longer trials persist and the more spiritually fatigued we become, the more susceptible our mind becomes to the lies of the devil. And so do not be deceived. Scripture calls our minds to be renewed by the Word and by the Spirit. But when life stays hard, our thoughts conform instead to worldly thinking. Scripture calls our mind to be aligned by bringing all of our anxieties to God in prayer. But when life stays hard, oftentimes our thoughts drift into fear and worry and what if. Scripture calls us to have an exclusive mind by loving God with all of our mind. But when life stays hard, our affections oftentimes become divided. Scripture calls us to fix our mind by thinking only on th those things that are true and lovely and honest and of a good report. But when life stays hard, our thoughts become distracted by those things of lesser value and those things of lesser virtue. Scripture calls us to have our minds captive. All of our thoughts brought under the obedience and authority of Christ. But when life stays hard, instead of being captive to Christ, our mind is often captive to our trials. And so... James is giving a warning here. Do not be deceived. You see, oftentimes it's the subtle lies that have the greatest potential for destruction in our hearts and our minds. You see, the devil's going to have a hard time convincing you and convincing me of a big lie. I mean, after all, we're in church this morning. We're followers of Jesus. We've got the Spirit of Christ within us. So the devil's not going to be able to come to you this morning and say, God is dead. You're going to be like, nope, don't believe it. But he will come to you with a subtle lie and say, God is distant. Or God is distracted. Or God is disinterested in you. See, I wouldn't believe the lie, God is dead. Maybe, maybe an atheist, maybe a skeptic, maybe an unbeliever, but not me. I'm a child of the king. I, I'm not going to believe that lie, but I'll start to believe these little ones. 
these subtle, these subtle lies that, that begin to mislead and take me off course. I would call these one-degree lies. Just one degree. One-degree lies. I've got a picture for you this morning. If you were here last week, I had a picture for you last week. Full disclosure, do we have the picture? I did not draw this one, okay? I pirated this one off the internet. What you see here is one degree. One degree out of 360. It's small. It's subtle. It's seemingly insignificant. But do you know that if an airplane were to leave New York City and fly six and a half hours to San Francisco, and if that airplane would get just one degree off course, by the time it landed, it would be 43 miles outside of San Francisco. And that's only after six and a half hours. See, what Satan tries to do is he tries to feed us subtle lies because subtle, small lies, just all he needs to do is change the trajectory and time will do the rest. And if you allow one of those subtle lies to be planted in the soil of your mind, it's just a matter of time, it's going to start growing and you'll start believing lies that you never would have believed back at the beginning. You'll start believing some of the big ones later on because you started with some of the subtle ones. So what one degree lie have you started believing? Maybe you've started to believe that, well, if God were truly good, life wouldn't stay hard. Well, that's a subtle lie. When did God promise that life would be easy? When did God promise that his chief aim is our happiness? No. His chief aim is our Christ-likeness and His glory. So we start to believe these subtle lies. What, what about the subtle lie that I, I can handle watching explicit content? It's just me. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody finds out about it. <clears throat> it's not really affecting anybody but me, so I can handle this. It's a subtle lie. Or the one-degree lie that I don't need church community to have a dynamic relationship with God. I can just fly solo like I'm an only child in the family of God. That is a subtle lie, and I've seen that subtle lie take so many good Christians just slightly off course at first, but then over time, they end up way over in left field. Or the subtle misleading lie that our marriage just needs to make it for our kids. That's a deceptive lie. You see, belief affects behavior every single time. So whatever you are beginning to believe, it's going to start changing your behavior. And lies don't have to be big to be misleading. All Satan wants to do is change the trajectory. One degree lies. When life stays hard, don't be deceived. That's the first negative action. The next three actions are positive. How do we keep trusting God when life stays hard? Number one, resi by resisting subtle misleading lies. Number two, by remembering God's constant benevolence. It's in the first half of verse 17. See it there in the text. James writes and he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now some translations combine these two and say every good and perfect gift is from above. But James actually says the word every twice. And he says the word gift twice. The first gift that he speaks of is the action of a gift being given. So every good gift given and every perfect gift is from above. So when life is staying hard, come back to and remember God's constant benevolence in your life. 
the emphasis here are on those two adjectives, good and perfect. Now, don't let that word good confuse you. Sometimes we use that, good, that word good comparatively. Like when you ask your kids when they come home from school, like, how was school today? And they say, oh, it was good. Basically, it means it wasn't like the worst day ever and it wasn't the best day ever. Like, I didn't, I didn't get suspended today and it wasn't the last day of school, you know? It was just sort of meh, kind of like right in the middle, like vanilla, just sort of there. Kind of okay. But when God speaks of something being good, that word means useful, like functional. Like God is not giving you a gift that is meant to be put on a shelf. It's meant to be used in your life. So every good gift, every useful gift given, but then he says every perfect gift. Well, we've seen that word already in chapter 1. That word means mature. It means complete. So the gifts that God is giving to you, they're tailor-made. They're, they're just for you. They're, 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 they're the perfect fit, exactly what you need. And they're useful. They're meant to be used in your life. What are these gifts? What is, what is the context of chapter 1? James has already shared with us several of these good and perfect gifts. And maybe, maybe we've not thought of these as gifts, but they are. How about the trials that come? How about the trials that come and the lessons that accompany those trials? Those are good and perfect gifts. How about the wisdom that he talks about in verse 5? If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That is a good and perfect gift from a good and perfect God. Or the exaltation that we talked about a few weeks ago. Or the humiliations and the lessons that that humiliation teaches. Or how about the crown of life, that wreath that the athlete receives when he has finished running his race. These are all the good and perfect gifts. But then James says, not just those, but every good gift and every perfect gift. So he broadens it. Consider in your life all that God has done. Matthew 7 verse 11, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I want you to notice here in this verse both the origin of and the direction of these gifts. Look at it again in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and then it says, coming down from the Father of lights. So let's just sit in this for a while. This is our God. Our God is the God who gives gifts, who sends them down, and who himself came down through his Son. You see, Jesus is the great gift that God sent down to us in our need and in our weakness and in our frailty. Jesus is the one who lived the life that we could not live. Jesus is the one who bore the shame and the debt of our sin that we deserve to bear. And Jesus is the one who rose victoriously three days later so that we could have new life in Him. And here's the tragic beauty, beauty of that. None of that that came down is what we deserved. We did not deserve good, and we did not deserve perfect, and we did not deserve Jesus, and we did not deserve forgiveness, and we did not deserve redemption. We deserved wrath. We deserved judgment. We deserved condemnation. But because God is good, and because God is perfect, He sends only those gifts that are a reflection of His character. So when life stays hard, count your blessings. Count them. 
recall and remember the benevolence of your God who has given you good and useful things and perfect and tailor-made things to your unique circumstances and needs. God's gifts are meant to be used. I'm a pretty practical person, and so I give pretty practical gifts. Um, Sometimes I've taken this a little too far. Like when I was a kid for Mother's Day, I bought my mom an industrial-sized trash can. I have learned my lessons since then, okay? There are, there are times to be practical and there are times not to be practical. Mother's Day is not a time to be practical, okay? Chocolate, flowers, those kind of things. Very impractical. But here's the thing. My mom still uses that trash can. So maybe that's where I get my practical uh, personality from. But the gifts that God gives to you and the gifts that God gives to me are gifts that are meant to be used. They're meant to be enjoyed. So what has God given you? He's given you the gospel. He's given you your church family. He's given you some measure of health. Maybe not as much as you'd like, but it's some measure of health. He's given you some some measure of finance and resource. He's given those things to you. He's given you your children. He's given you your grandchildren. He's given you the relationships and the friendships in your life. These are the good and the perfect gifts that God has sent down to you. And so when life stays hard, count your blessings and remember God's constant benevolence. I can keep trusting God by resisting subtle misleading lies and remembering God's constant benevolence. And number three, by reaffirming God's unchanging character. God's unchanging character. Look at it again in verse 17. We find this in the second half of this verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That phrase, Father of lights, was an ancient Jewish way of referring to God as the Father of the stars. Quite literally, God is the architect of creation. We go all the way back to the first book in the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. You'll see it on the screens here. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. The Father of lights. The Father who has flung the stars and the planets and the universes and the galaxies into existence with just a spoken word. That God is the God who never changes. That God is the God whose character is always constant. So in case you're still questioning His good and His perfect gifts, He is the Father of all creation, which was created as good and perfect, and He never changes. And then James uses two ways of describing his absolute unchangeable character and he he speaks of it in astronomical terms he says that his character has no variation means it does not change and his character has no shadow due to change or due to turning so he's communicating two things he's saying God does not change and God cannot be changed so in the theological world if you are a Bible student this is called the immutability of God He does not change, and he cannot be changed. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, there are two common misconceptions about God. And these misconceptions are not just misconceptions that 
unbelievers have about God, but I've heard these articulated by believers as well. And it's this. Number one, either that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, or that Jesus in the New Testament is the better, kinder, more compassionate version of the angry, vengeful God of the Old Testament. And let me just say something, by the way, that if you are wrestling with some of that, this is the best place to wrestle with it. I've been in some contexts that try to quiet the questions that people have about their faith and about God. Listen, that's the last thing you want to do because quieting somebody's questions doesn't make them go away. It just makes you look suspicious about what you're hiding. So let this be the kind of place, if you're like, man, I've thought that. Like, I kind of read the Old Testament sometimes. Like, I'm like, woo, that doesn't look so kind. Why does, it, why does Jesus look so much more compassionate? And sometimes those are legitimate questions that people have. But I would offer to you today, based on the authority of the word, that those are misconceptions. God's character is anchored in his name. Did you know that God has a name? And I don't mean God. God is a title, not a name. God has a name. His name is Yahweh. And when you read the Old Testament and you see the word LORD in all caps, it is the word Yahweh. It is the formal name for God. So I want to show you Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Because in Exodus 34, God states his name, Yahweh, and then he defines his name. Names have meanings. So here it is, verse 6. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That last phrase can be a little confusing, but he's not speaking of penalty. He's speaking of consequence. This is our God. And when you read that, you think, man, that looks a lot like Jesus. That compassion and that mercy and that slow to anger, well, Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So yes, there are some things in the Old Testament maybe that won't make total sense if you cherry pick them. There are some things in the Old Testament that you have to understand in their covenantal context, yes. There are some things in the Old Testament that you might have to wrestle with and you might have to study a little bit deeper with, but there is nothing about the character of God in the Old Testament that is different from the character of God in the New Testament. Because if God's character is changing, or if it has some shadow of change, then God would cease to be God. Because that would mean that his character was flawed and imperfect and needing adjustment and needing improvement. So when life stays hard, come back to, reaffirm God's unchanging character. You know what it is about life when it's hard that sometimes makes it so hard? It's that everything just keeps changing. Everything keeps shifting. Everything keeps moving. Everything is different. And so when life changes and when life continues to be different and when things seem to continue to sift through your fingers, come back to the God who never changes. Come back to the God and anchor yourself to the God who, who cannot be changed. He is the object of light and for, there, for the shadow to change, that means that the object of light has changed and the object of light who is God never changes so his shadow and the shadow that is cast never changes. Reaffirm this. 
Speak this to yourself. Sing this to yourself. Preach this to yourself. God does not change. It seems like every classroom in school had a prankster. You know what I'm talking about? That kid who was always wanting to get a laugh at somebody else's expense. Some of you are getting a little nervous because maybe that was you. That prankster who was looking for that unsuspecting classmate where they could pull that chair out from underneath them just, just while they were sitting down and they just kind of fall and hit their butt on the floor. God is not a prankster. God is not pulling chairs out from underneath you. God is not saying this but then saying, nope, oops, sorry, I got you. I'm actually going to do this. God is not trying to trick you. God is not trying to deceive you. God is not trying to connive you. He is constant, unchanging, immutable, always the same. Many of us grew up singing the song, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. God is the same, unchanging. When life stays hard, keep trusting God. I can keep trusting God by resisting subtle lies, by remembering God's constant benevolence, by reaffirming God's unchanging character. And then number four, and finally this morning, by recounting God's greatest gift. Now I'm going to warn you, verse 18 is packed. You could preach a whole message just on verse 18. We're not going to do that. We're going to preach the fourth point on verse 18. But I want you to look at it and sit in it and soak in it and believe it and recall it and remember it. This is God's greatest gift. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Now, Pastor James gets some criticism by some scholars. Some people want to argue that that James preaches a gospel of works and it's different from the gospel that Paul preached, which was a gospel of faith. But I I I would submit to you today that right here we see James articulate the exact same gospel that Paul articulates all through the book of Romans. Of his own will, he brought us forth, he birthed us by the word of truth so that we might be the first fruits, the beginning of many who would come to faith in Christ. So here is the gospel in its full plan, in its full purpose. First, James tells us that God initiates the gospel. That's that very first phrase, of his own will. Understand this morning that salvation is a God work, not a man work. You cannot work of your own will and get something from God. Of his own sovereign will. God moved toward us. God loved us first. God made the way possible so that we could be saved. Nothing is scarier than seeing someone flatline where their heart stops beating and they are considered dead. In that moment, that individual who has flatlined has no ability in and of themselves to resuscitate themselves, to bring themselves back to life. They are dead and that is the condition that we are said to be in before Christ. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So when James says, of his own will, the word will means desire or want. It was God's desire, his desire towards us that saved us. So if you were here this morning 
and you are not yet a child of God, I can tell you with confidence that God wants and desires for you to be saved today. If you are here and you are a child of God and you have been saved, then you can recount this truth, the greatest gift. God chose you of his own will. God initiates the gospel, but then God facilitates the gospel. Look at the second phrase in verse 18, of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Two very important phrases. Brought us forth is birth language. It's the same word that's used in verse 15, that sin, when it is finished, brings forth, births, death. So consider what sin births, death, and now consider what God births, life. He us forth, but then it says, by the word of truth. That is the gospel. The word of truth is the good news that man can be made right with God, not through his own work, but through the finished work of Jesus on his or her behalf. We have been birthed, we have been brought forth as new creations. So you are not just a cleaned up version of the old you. You are a brand new creation in Christ through the gospel. God initiates the gospel, God facilitates the gospel, and then God propagates the gospel. Right at the end of verse 18, that we, those of us who have been brought forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. That word first fruits has, has deep, rich uh, Bible meaning behind it, Old Testament meaning behind it. The first fruits were the first and the best of the crops. And several things in scripture are referred to as first fruits. Offspring were considered first fruits. The Israelites were considered first fruits. Jesus was called the first fruits. The Holy Spirit is called the first fruit of our inheritance, the down payment. And now here we are called the first fruits of his creatures, of his creation. God will one day redeem all of creation. We are just the beginning. So God spreads, God propagates the gospel through those who have received the gospel. If we are the first fruits, that means that God is expecting more. Second fruits and third fruits and more fruit and increased fruit. And so Paul, another writer of the New Testament, says in Colossians 1 verses 5 and 6, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, fruit bears the seed. If you were to pull an apple off of an apple tree and you were to cut it open, that fruit on the inside, there is a seed. And while you and I have no power over the germination process, we are called to spread it. We are called to share it. We are called to recount it. And when life gets hard, one of the greatest things you can do is to go back to that gift, the great gift of salvation, the gospel in Christ, that of his own will he has brought you forth by the word of truth that you would be the first fruits of his creatures. And so now when life gets hard, we speak the gospel. We spread the gospel. We recount the gospel. We speak it to ourselves. We speak it and preach it to one another. We don't ever move past the gospel. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. And then we go to those who've not yet believed. And we spread that seed of the gospel with them, even when life gets hard. 
The reality is that the hardness of your life might be what makes you most ready to be used by God to share the gospel. Because now in your weakness, he will be made strong. And he will get the glory. So God wants to say, trust me. He speaks that to us today, but let's just be honest. Words sometimes can feel cheap. So God did not just say, trust me. He showed that we could trust him. And so the gospel is his word in action. That he sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be made right with God. So here's that big idea. When life stays hard, keep trusting God. Keep trusting God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're beginning to feel some of that trial fatigue. You're just a little worn down. You're here. I commend you for that. You're in the room. And maybe that's just about all you could do is get in the room. So thank you for being in the room. But life didn't just get hard for you. Life has been staying hard. And you're starting to feel that fatigue. Like an athlete at the gym who just kind of senses that the muscles are just weakening and giving out and tearing down. And you just don't feel like you have much strength to go on. God wants to whisper two words to you today. Trust me. How can I trust God? How can I trust God when I just keep feeling the overwhelming burden and weight of these circumstances on my life? Well, you can keep trusting Him by resisting those one-degree lies. Don't be deceived. By remembering God's constant benevolence, by counting those blessings, by reaffirming God's unchanging character. He's not a prankster. He's not pulling chairs out from underneath you. He's not changing and shifting and moving. He is the same. He is your rock. And by recounting God's greatest gift, come back to the gospel that of his own will he brought you forth by the word of truth that you would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I don't know where you might be this morning and I don't know what you may have brought in with you, what you may have been carrying in with you or how long you have been carrying that. But the reality is sometimes life just stays hard. And if that's you this morning, there is hope. And may the Spirit of God minister to you through His Word and give you the courage to continue going on and continue trusting and walking after Jesus. We want to learn to live today. We do this each week because we don't just want to learn to learn. But we want to, we want to allow the Spirit of God to make applications. So I've got three questions for you before we conclude our time together. Number one is this. Have you received God's greatest gift? That's an important question, and it's a question that we ask in some form every single week. Because you might be here, and you've been coming to church, and you've been doing some religious stuff, and you've been doing some traditionalism, but you've never actually received that great gift of Christ can I tell you today that his will for you is that you would be saved. He is not willing, Peter says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so based on the very character of God, I can say to you today that he has been slow to anger. He has been merciful and compassionate towards you. And he has sent down his son so that you could have the forgiveness of your sin. And so if you are here and you have not trusted Jesus, could I encourage you and implore you today, trust Jesus alone. 
put faith in him. Allow him to take you from death to life. Number two, if you are a child of his and you have put faith in his greatest gift, where has fatigue set in? And what gospel remedy do you need to apply? I won't go back through all of the points of the message, but the Spirit of God, if he's spoken to you, he's spoken to you in an area where you're starting to feel some of that fatigue. Life is staying hard. Apply the gospel to that. Put the gospel on the ground right there and let the Spirit of God do the deep work in you that needs to be done. And then number three, where do you need to spread the seed this week? You're the first fruits. God is expecting an increase. You have no power over that germination process, but you can just throw the seed out. And you can share what Christ has done in your life. And you can pray with somebody at work. And you can be a testimony and a light. And you can be salt. And every time you do that, it may seem insignificant to you, but it is seed to God. When that lands on the right soil, and it takes root, and it implants itself, God will do that transformative work in the heart of the hearer. So our job is to just simply spread the seed. Are you sharing the life-giving word of truth with others? That's what God has called us to, each and every one of us, to do that this week. Fathers, we come to you in prayer today. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we have to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Thank you that we have had the opportunity to be the church today. I want to pray for the eight or nine or ten folks that stood here. I don't know the burdens that they are bearing, but by their own admission, it just keeps coming. And they're weary and they're fatigued. May your spirit encourage them today. I pray for that one that's just on the verge of fatigue. Maybe they didn't stand, but boy, they're starting to feel it. May you strengthen them. Thank you for Jesus, the good and perfect gift that was sent down so that we could have an eternal relationship with you and this beautiful relationship with one another. Continue to do your work and continue to minister. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church... Go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.